think we'll start. Welcome everyone. Uh, welcome everyone. This is the AI and insurance session. Um, before we start, just an announcement. So we are running 30 minutes behind schedule. Um, so lunch will be at one o'clock and then the session after that will start at 10 to two. Um, I'd like to introduce Ronald Richmond. His presentation is based on a paper that if you were in the introductory session earlier, you would have seen that he won two awards. Um, so well done and we look forward to hearing. So just, just to start off, thank you very much to ASA for giving me the platform over here to talk about um, something which I found very interesting over the last couple of months, which is AR or artificial intelligence in actuarial science. And really what this talk is going to be about um, is three things. The first is provide some context to understand what is deep learning, which is uh, probably the most successful approach to artificial intelligence that is really making waves in a number of different industries. Um, I'll then move on to discussing some applications of deep learning in actuarial science, which hopefully will be of interest to everyone in the audience. Um, but there's also a practical aspect to this talk. Um, deep learning is a very empirically orientated field. Um, and I think it's important for us as actuaries and professionals who are involved in modeling data to experiment with these two techniques and understand where they can take the profession and, and actuarial science. So for that reason, I've also provided code for some of the examples which you can download off the internet. You can find the link at the end. So if something catches your eye, feel free to go get the code and, and experiment. But what this talk is also about is that I think the ship is sailing. And if actuaries don't get on board with more modern modeling techniques coming out of um, areas like computer science, I think the profession is going to have um, some difficult questions to answer in five to ten years. And in this respect, I think I'm trying to echo some of the comments made by Peter at this morning's session that um, there are people almost encroaching on the domain that's traditionally been occupied by actuaries. And in one of the examples we'll be looking at later today, uh, I think I'll discuss how um, in other areas of the academic literature you've seen great advances being made, for example, in, in the analysis of telematics data. So for me, the ship is sailing is quite an important point to remember um, as we're going through this. There are other people involved in this and it's really not mainly actuaries. So what actually inspired this talk? Um, I came across this quote from Daniel Schreiber, who's the CEO of a really innovative American insurance company called Lemonade. It's an online um, app, uh, quite similar in some respects um, to Naked, um, which uh, also is following quite, a, quite an interesting and similar approach, except that they mainly supply renters insurance. And he said the future of insurance will be staffed by bots rather than brokers and AI in favor of actuaries. And this got me thinking, well, it's quite a statement coming from the CEO of a very innovative insurtech. Um, and, and it started me off on a little bit of a journey thinking, what is AR, what does it mean for actuaries, and what does it mean for the discipline of actuarial science? Um, this also, as I started exploring, these were some of the other things I started coming across, is that we, I think pretty much, it's a safe statement to make, that everybody in this audience today is using deep learning in some form or another, embedded into a product from Google, Apple, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and a whole host of other tech companies. 
And I think we might use it more in the medium term. So there was this great presentation in the last session on driverless cars, and the foundation of the computer vision algorithms for driverless cars is generally straight out of um, deep learning, the deep learning literature. So I think we're all using deep learning. Um, something we might not be aware of is that a lot of us are helping to train deep learning. So this uh, rather irritating thing which pops up on websites when, it, uh, when a website is trying to validate if you're a human or not, what it's asking you to do is click on different bits of the images that have got bridges. And where this data is actually going is someone's got a big data center somewhere capturing all your labeled images and then tra training computer vision models on it. So we're all using deep learning in some way or another, I think is fair to say. We're all helping to train deep learning. And my question is, are actuaries benefiting from deep learning in the particular domain that we occupy um, within finance and, and insurance? So what is, what is the rest of this presentation going to be about? I'm going to try to give some minimal introduction to machine learning, the bare bones that I think is necessary to try and understand what is deep learning all about. Uh, in the next section, in, the, in, in section two, I'll discuss deep learning and try to give a little bit of an overview of what are the key ideas in the field and what is it all about. And then I'll discuss the five main deep neural network architectures which you're likely to encounter if you start going down this road. Section three is... Um, where I discuss recent applications of deep neural networks and deep learning in actuarial science. And lastly, section four will be about the discuss discussing what we've seen and concluding. So what is machine learning? I mean, this is a buzzword that's been thrown around in uh, numerous different places. We've had some great sessions at this um, convention already about deep learning. The best definition I found is actually from the, the back of a book that was published in 1997. And this definition says that machine learning is the field concerned with the study of algorithms that allow computer programs to automatically improve through experience. So there's a split infinitive there, I'm not going to quibble about that. But um, I think this is a really good um, definition. Machine learning is about training a computer to perform certain tasks, and the more data or experience that you feed it, the better that the machine becomes. Um, machine learning is an approach to artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence is a, um, a big and wide-ranging field, and has had different types of approaches throughout its history. So machine learning is an approach to artificial intelligence, where you train systems to recognize patterns within data. And machine learning is a very different paradigm from earlier attempts to create artificial intelligence systems, which basically consisted of hard-coding um, rules and information and knowledge into databases. Um, and this was successful in some limited domains, but this approach, uh, which uh, people refer to as the systems approach to artificial intelligence, started to fail on highly complex tasks. So for example, you can't um, perform image recognition using um, the systems approach. Um, it becomes very difficult to do scene understanding and labeling or inferring semantic concepts. And that's why the machine learning paradigm seems to be the dominant paradigm in artificial intelligence today. Basically, if I wanted to sum it up, it's you feed data to the machine and you let the machine figure out exactly how it's meant to get to the results that you, you're after. So this is a map of machine learning. Um, Machine learning is, is a discipline with three main sub-areas, um, the way that I, I understand it. There's supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. 
Um, within supervised learning, supervised, and, and let me just say that in the next slides we'll examine each of these in detail, but I'm just trying to give the conceptual layout over here. Within supervised learning, you've got regression, which is where you try to predict a numerical outcome from data. Think of non-life pricing or reserving. And classification, which is a little bit more rare in actuarial circles where you try to decide is a particular data point of one category or another. And where deep learning fits in, in this conceptual map, um, you'll see that I have it at the bottom over here. Deep learning is an approach to all of these facets of machine learning. So if you are trying to perform a machine learning exercise, deep learning is an approach that you can take. So what are these things in machine learning? Um, supervised learning is the application of machine learning to data sets that contain features or information or data points and then outputs that you're trying to predict from those, um, from those features. So what I've put up on, uh, on the slide, this um, is a data set straight out of R. You can see the R code over there. And it consists, this is um, actually a French motor third-party liability data set. And on the right you can see I've labeled the features um, these are things that you'd commonly find in a non-life pricing data set, like age of the driver, vehicle type, etc. What you're trying to predict is column Y, which is the number of claims. So this would be an example of frequency modeling. But what's very interesting to me is that as you start exploring the machine learning and especially the deep learning literature, you start realizing that the scope of supervised learning is much broader than the type of tabular data I just showed you. So here is... Um, Another example where you're trying to predict what category do these images form uh, part of. Is it an aeroplane or a horse, for example? And there your features are th is this very unstructured data. It's literally just a, a picture. And you're trying to predict from the picture to a label. Another example, this is the IMDb um, movie review data set. You can see people have written reviews. And what you're trying to predict is whether, whether or not the review is positive or negative. So the scope of supervised learning is very broad and incorporates a lot of unstructured data that at least back when I was in varsity, I wasn't trained on how to deal with. So that's supervised learning, which is the first branch. Unsupervised learning is when you apply machine learning to data sets consisting only of features. So in other words, you're not trying to predict anything, but you're trying to find a pattern within a data set um, that helps you understand the data and then you can use for other applications. Where actuaries might, be, um, might have come across unsupervised learning is in modeling yield curves for the SCR um, for interest rate risk in SAM. That was done via principal components analysis. If there are any life actuaries in the room, if you think about the Lee Carter model, that's a simple application of unsupervised learning where you're performing principal components regression. So unsupervised learning is a little bit more foreign in that map of machine learning. And then probably the most foreign is reinforcement learning. Reinforcement learning is a fascinating field um, which seems to have some interesting applications, but I can't see any application yet in actuarial science. Reinforcement learning is learning when an agent learns what action to take in order to maximize a reward signal. And um, here's an example. This is a picture of the AlphaGo um, Go match. Go is a type of, of game that's very similar to chess in a way. Um, but can't be solved um, by computers using um, the approach that's used for chess. And recently what happened is that um, a system programmed by Google beat the reigning world champion in Go, and this was said to be almost impossible for a computer. So that gives, well, at least a couple of years ago. So that gives you an idea of how the field is advancing. I'm not going to talk too much more about um, 
about um, reinforcement learning just because I don't think there's been any major application in actuarial science yet. So machine learning and actuarial problems. Um, a lot of actuarial problems are actually supervised regression problems. Um, and that means that if an actuarial problem can be expressed as a regression, then you can apply the full weight of machine learning and deep learning techniques to that particular actuarial problem. So a couple of, an obvious example is short-term pricing. Um, IBNR reserving can be expressed as a regression on the life side mortality modeling and life valuation models. But my, but my advice to anyone in the audience who's thinking of ever trying this on a, in a practical way is don't forget about unsupervised learning either. And that can be really useful. So hopefully there's some cynics in the audience who's saying, so this machine learning stuff is just regression. What do we need to care about this? There's nothing new or interesting here. And I don't think that that particular train of thought is entirely true. Um, machine learning relies on a different approach to modeling, and I've, I've broken down some of the steps of modeling to building models, parameterizing, and especially testing models, and that's based on what the literature calls statistical learning theory. And there's a great paper by Shmueli, who wrote this in 2010, who tries to lay out what are the key differences between the types of statistical inference and modeling that I think you get trained in in math stats one, two, and three in university, and machine learning. And she breaks it down as the difference between what you're trying to accomplish. Are you, trying to, are you trying to predict or are you trying to explain? And the focus in machine learning is on predictive performance and this leads to a couple of outcomes which I think are characteristic of the machine learning literature and techniques you'll come across. One is that in machine learning you'll build an algorithm to predict a response and you won't spend much time trying to specify a statistical model. So oftentimes if you're an actuary and you get a new data set, you'll look at it and if it's count data you'll say, okay, this could be an over-dispersed Poisson um, distribution, let's fit a GLM. No one's particularly interested in the statistical, stochastic data generating model that underlies the data in machine learning. And this, uh, if you're interested in exploring that, there's a great paper by Leo Brayman who invented random forests called the two cultures of data modeling. Um, and what this also leads to is that generally in the machine learning literature you'll favor models which have got good predictive performance even if they're very difficult to interpret. Um, some other aspects are you'll accept bias in your, the parameters of your model if that, leads, if that um, is expected to reduce your overall prediction error. Um, I'm not going to go into that in too much detail, but in the appendix to Shmueli, she gives a great example. And then there's a major focus on quantifying predictive error of your model. So you don't take all of your data and fit a model to it. There are a number of different techniques, sometimes splitting your data into different sets on which you fit your data and then test it, or you apply techniques like cross-validation. So hopefully that answers for the audience whether or not, I guess, the cynical train of thought is, is machine learning just regression and is there anything worth spending time on here? So that is a bare bones introduction to machine learning and what I'd like to discuss in the next section is what is deep learning and how does this fit into the context of machine learning? So I'm going back to the um, French third-party motor um, liability data set that you've seen before. And what I've plotted on the right-hand side of the graph is claims frequency um, plotted against the age of the driver. And you can see that it's, not, it's definitely not linear. You've got some points there and some points there. And if you just fit a simple smoothing model, you see it almost produces a, a quadratic shape. So let's say that you'd like to add um, driver age squared to your model in order to capture that effect that you're seeing in the data. So this in the machine learning literature is called feature engineering. So these are the features in X 
And what you're doing is you're enlarging the feature space with driver age squared. So if anyone can do their maths really quick, that should be the square of that. Um, that that's called feature engineering. And feature engineering um, is great, and I think any actuary who's ever worked with a big data set and tried to model it um, has done feature engineering um, in the course of their normal um, business activities. Um, but feature engineering has got a bunch of downsides. One is that designing features is really time consuming and tedious. And it becomes even more difficult if um, you don't have eight predictors, but what happens if you have 8,000 or 8 million predictors, which might happen in a very large data set, it becomes almost impossible to sift through all of that by hand and create the features that you need to achieve good predictive performance. Um, another issue is that creating features relies on a lot of expert knowledge. Um, that might not be transferable to a new domain. So back in the day in the computer vision literature, people would spend almost their entire careers perfecting feature engineering on particular data sets. So for example, to recognize human faces. Um, and then if you take that same expert who wrote that algorithm and ask him to fit uh, a GLM on some pricing data, his expertise is probably going to be not entirely helpful. So these are some of the disadvantages of feature engineering. And there's an approach in machine learning called representation or feature learning. And this is a philosophy which says instead of trying to design features, instead of manually going and squaring things in your data set because you think it will fit better, allow your algorithm to automatically design a set of features that are optimal for your task at hand. So a traditional example, like we've mentioned before, in unsupervised learning is principal components analysis, which constructs, constructs optimal linear combinations of your features. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, so don't worry. And then in supervised learning, um, uh, partial least squares is the... Um, is an application of uh, a very similar algorithm to principal components analysis. But the problem with re representation learning up to the advent of deep learning is that simple and naive re um, representation learning approaches often fail when you apply it to very high dimensional data. And an example of high dimensional data is an image, what you get out of a telematics system, natural language data, um, you find that these approaches don't work. And this is where deep learning comes in. And I, for, this is really the most important um, slide in this introductory section. So deep learning is a representation learning technique that automatically constructs hierarchies of complex features, which are themselves composed of simpler features learned at earlier stages of the model. So that's a bit of a mouthful, and let's just say it again and break it down. So what we've just been discussing is representation learning, which is when you allow models to design their own features to lead to optimal predictive performance. What deep learning is about is it's an approach to allowing algorithms to design features, but the way it composes these features is quite interesting and quite novel. And it basically relies on constructing a hierarchy of features where you start off with simple features and by combining those features you come up with something much more complex. And the example you'll often hear written about or discussed in the deep learning literature is when you're doing image analysis and you fit a neural network to images, the first part of the neural network will learn about very simple things like edges um, or corners. And then later parts of the network start to recognize things like circles and then eyes in faces and faces and hands and people. So you have this, this um, hierarchy of concepts or hierarchy of things that the network is learning which go from the very simple 
which then get composed into the very complicated. So the most popular modern example of deep learning techniques is a feed-forward neural network, which we'll discuss in a lot more detail, but that's a multi-layered machine learning model where each layer um, learns a new representation of the features um, that you input. And the principle really is, is throw as much data as you possibly can get your hands on to the network and let it figure out exactly what it should learn. And in this way meets one of the desirable properties for artificial intelligence systems which are um, listed by Yeshua Bengio. He's one of the guys who's really been responsible for um, bringing neural networks back um, in this most recent round of interest in neural networks. And his desirable feature is a system that has an ability to learn with little human input, the low level, intermediate, and high level abstractions that are useful to represent the kind of complex functions needed for artificial intelligence. And hopefully after the explanation of what deep learning is all about, that statement will make a bit more sense. So this sounds all very nice and philosophical and hopefully um, everyone understands what I'm talking about, but why should we care about this? And I think the reason that we as actuaries should care and the impact that deep learning is making out there is that it's achieved some major successes in a whole bunch of fields where to, before deep learning, no success or very little success had been achieved. So the problem of computer vision, which is recognizing what object appears in a picture, has effectively been solved by deep learning. Five years ago, Kaggle, which is a data science platform, had a competition to try to get people to distinguish between cats and dogs. And today, five years later, with three lines of code, you can do that to something like 99.99% accuracy. And that just gives some feeling for how good and advanced these models have become. Other major successes have been in speech recognition, natural language processing. I often use Google Translate. Um, Google's translation product is built around a big neural network. Um, neural networks with a, or deep neural networks with a learning method in the 2018 M4 time series forecasting competition. Um, and, and that's something that will, there's been quite a lot of publicity about. Um, and they've also achieved state-of-the-art performance on the analysis of GPS data and also the analysis of tabular data, which is the type of data that actuaries are probably most likely to encounter. So now that we've spoken about what is deep learning, let's have a look at some of the major types of deep neural networks. But before I dip in, let's start with a gentle introduction. So this is um, probably the most simple um, neural network style diagram that you're ever going to see. And what we've got is some circles um, and some edges or some lines. So this is a very simple regression model and, and let's explain how you can understand that. These represent variables. Um, this is the input layer where you put your data in. Over here you've got eight input variables so it's an eight dimensional feature space and you're predicting a single variable uh, and that's the output layer. And really, um, the way that you do that, the way you go from the input to predicting is by multiplying what you put in by a coefficient. And this should sound pretty familiar because this is a neural network representation of, I guess what you could say a GLM, but really you could represent a linear regression like that as well. So this is the gentle introduction. This is what a more complicated feed-forward neural network might look like. So let's, let's follow the same approach in explaining what we're looking at. Here is an input layer. Here it's a 16-dimensional input layer. But what's different is there's the output. And in the middle you've got these two 8-dimensional layers 
which are all connected to each other. So let's break down the terminology. Deep means that you've got multiple layers. There's one, there's two, there's three. Feed forward means the data is flowing from your input data from left to right, and it can't go back in any way. Um, and basically what this network architecture does is in those intermediate layers, it's almost performing a regression at each step. So over here, the network is combining all of your inputs into a new variable, and then it does it again. So that's one layer of representations that your network can learn. And then in the next layer, it doesn't take your inputs, it actually takes the learned representations at the previous layer. And that allows the neural network to learn very complicated representations of the data that you fed in, and this leads to major gains in um, predictive accuracy without much work on the part of the person who's building the network. This is another example. So what you can see is I've basically stuck two deep neural networks together. There's one and there's another. This is called a deep autoencoder because what the point of this network is trying to, uh, what this network is trying to accomplish is to reproduce the input you put in here exactly in the output layer. But the trick is that in the middle, it's only got very little information, and in this case, there's only one dimension. So what you're trying to do is encode your data that you're putting in in a very um, low dimension to provide a summary of your data. So this is really good for unsupervised learning, and what we'll see a little bit later is an application of this to some telematics data. This is a convolutional neural network. Um, and what you can see, I've made an image of it too very clumsily in Excel, because I'm a good actuary and I like Excel a lot. Um, and there's the data matrix of that um, particular image. And what a convolutional neural network does is it applies a whole bunch of what are called filters. So you have a matrix over here. This particular one is um, composed of ones at the top and negative ones at the bottom. And you apply that matrix to different slices of your input data. So you start off there, you do some um, very simple arithmetic, and then you get what's called a feature map. And you keep applying this filter across your input matrix until you eventually fill out this entire matrix below. And what the trick is over here is that you don't specify what the filters are. You allow the neural network to do that for you, and by doing that, it starts to learn very interesting things. So this, for example, would be an edge detector, a horizontal edge detector, which is, um, would it detect that type of edge in the image over there. And you apply multiple filters, and then on top of these feature maps in the next layer of the network, you apply another set of filters. And these types of neural networks are extremely useful for data with any sort of spatial or temporal structure. So that could be images, time series, videos, um, and, and a, lot, a lot of things like that. The next architecture, so we're on four out of five in case anyone is getting a bit um, tired of this exposition over here. This is a recurrent neural network. And really, all this is, is um, a network that's been designed to deal with um, input data where there's a sequence, where there's some sort of temporal meaning. And what you do is, it's really a feed-forward network, but at each step, you take the learned representations that the network learned on one data point, and you feed those learned representations into the next stage of the neural network. And in that way, the, the neural network starts exhibiting something which is almost very similar to memory, and therefore these networks are extremely useful for data with any sort of temporal structure or order. So great for natural language processing and time series. And then the last one, I think this is probably the most important neural network architecture for actuaries, because this is really excellent for tabular data. 
if for, for those of you who fit um, a GLM, for example, when you have categorical data, the classical approach that you take is, um, for example, let's say you're looking at different uh, professions with some connection to the insurance industry. If a person's an actuary and you're trying to rate their policy, you can't put a categorical variable into a GLM. So what you do is you build up this very sparse indicator matrix. So for example, if a person's an actuary, you put a one in the actuary box and a naught in all of the other boxes. And if a person's an underwriter, you'll give them uh, you'll activate the underwriter variable and you'll leave all the rest out. And in statistics, um, this is called dummy variables, and in machine learning, it's called one-hot encoding. The problem with one-hot encoding is you have this very sparse and high-dimensional data matrix. So the, the solution over there, the classical solution in actuarial science is you apply a credibility model and share statistical strength across the parameters, and that's how you deal with this problem of high dimensionality. The neural network approach is, in a way, um, also pretty elegant. And what they've come up with is, instead of having that matrix, you transform these sparse vectors into a dense numerical representation. So I'm just... I'm trying to um, irritate some people over here by comparing accountants and actuaries, and I hope very much that I've succeeded in that. Um, but what you can see is that instead of giving each uh, profession a particular, um, a particular variable, over here I've, I've put it in the context of what does each profession know about. And that's just a toy example. In real life, an embedding layer, for example, the embedding layer that Google put out called Word2Vec is I think, I think 400 dim dimensions across and um, much more complicated and maybe without such an easy interpretation. So let's summarize what we've seen before we move on to the examples. The key principle when you're working with neural networks and deep learning is use the architecture that expresses useful priors or useful information about your data and that leads to major performance gains. So deep feed forward neural networks are good for structured data, deep autoencoders for unsupervised learning, convolutional neural networks for data with a spatio-temporal structure, recurrent neural networks networks are good for data with a, temp oh, sorry, with a temporal structure, and lastly, embedding layers are really good for categorical data or real values that have been structured as categorical data. So that brings us on to the applications. So we've seen some theory about machine learning, and hopefully we all have got a picture of where deep learning fits in. Let's have a look at some practical applications. So I searched through the actuarial literature since 2006, which is when the current um, resurgence of interest in neural networks started. Um, there's not much that's published in the formal journals, but there's quite a lot of um, papers up on archive and on SSRN, which are preprint servers. Um, and in this list, um, if it's got an X, I'll be discussing it here. If not, it's in the paper. Two more recent papers which didn't make it into the list are an analysis of telematics data, raw telematics data using convolutional neural networks. Um, and I've also been very lucky to write a paper with Mario Wutrich on um, mortality forecasting with neural networks, and hopefully that will be coming out pretty soon. But the ones that we'll be examining today are pricing of non-life insurance, RBNR reserving, and telematics data. So let's kick it off with the pricing. So non-life pricing seems like a very obvious place where you'd want to apply machine learning and deep learning. And there's a great tutorial paper by Noel Saltzman and Wutrich 
um, where they actually apply a whole bunch of different methods to um, the French third-party liability data set um, in order to assess the performance. They find that machine learning approaches outperform GLMs. Um, they find that the neural network, which is a shallow neural network that they fit, um, is pretty much the same as boosted trees, which is another machine learning technique. Um, but what I found when I started playing around with this data set is that off-the-shelf approaches really didn't work particularly well. Um, I tried XGBoost, which is a gradient boosting method which is very popular in Kaggle competitions, and vanilla deep neural networks. And here are a couple of the results um, of what I applied. So we've got these in a table over here. We're looking at out-of-sample performance of the different models that were fit um, on the French third-party liability data set. Because it's frequency, this um, is the Poisson deviance, and basically the lower the better. So this is a simple GLM, which I fit in R, um, and that's the, the benchmark. And then just going back to the introduction to the architecture sector, you'll remember that I said you can express GLMs as neural networks. And that's exactly what was done over here, and you can see the results are exactly the same. A shallow neural network, meaning to say with only one layer where it can learn a representation, improved quite substantially on the GLM. But what was quite interesting to me is that neural network relied on a little bit of feature engineering. So for example, bucketing driver age into different categories or bucketing vehicle age. And when you take out all of the manual feature engineering, the performance of the neural network is actually horrible, even worse than your basic GLM. Things started getting a lot better when I added an, an, an embedding layer to the neural network. And lastly, when I added an embedding layer in something that I'm calling an, a learned exposure network, which we're going to deal with now. Basically, the message is from this is if you're going to apply deep learning to your data sets, you've got to make sure you're applying the right architecture or else you won't get any performance gain. But on the other hand, when you do get it right, the performance gain can be pretty, pretty impressive. I'm not going to dwell in too much detail on what this rather interesting graph is, but if I put it in um, terms I hear my colleagues in pricing use, this is a graph of relativities of different ages that the neural network has learned automatically. So I didn't specify that, I just put an embedding layer on driver age um, within R in, in the deep neural network, and it learns this really interesting schedule. Um, some notable things for me, as you can see, the youngest ages have got a higher relativity than your middle adult ages, and then things get a little bit higher over there. Um, this shows that what the neural network has learned is that the younger ages are, are generally different from the older ages. Um, but I think what's important to, to realize is that when you start interpreting coefficients of neural networks, you have to be very careful about interpreting them in a relative form. So basically, what the, the way to interpret this diagram is as age relativities. And here's the neural network I landed up fitting on this data set, which performed really well. Let me take you through the design. Here's the input layer, um, which we've seen before. There are a bunch of embedding layers, a feature layer, and finally an output layer where I'm predicting rate. But what's amazing about neural networks for me is that these models are extremely flexible. And what I wanted to see is, is the measure of exposure that's been um, provided in this data set a good measure for, um, for these claims? So I built a little mini neural network within the bigger neural network, which is trying to predict a more optimal exposure measure than the neural network has. Um, and what you can see, are, here are the results, that um, the neural network actually learns a more optimal exposure than what's in the data set, especially for multi-claimants. You can see that the exposure measure has been pushed up quite dramatically. 
Um, and at lower levels of exposure, it's boosting the exposure measure that's in the data set. Um, I find this quite fascinating because I feel this opens up a whole world of new exposure measures in pricing. Um, that's the pricing example. Something a bit closer to home for me as a reserving actuary is IBNR reserving. So IBNR reserving basically boils down to the regression of claims that will be reported in the future to a company um, on past claims. Um, and that's really a, a neat summary of the chain ladder model. You might include exposure measures in there as well, in which case you get to the Bornhead of Ferguson and Cape Cod methods. And that means in my mind that there's good potential for machine learning and deep learning approaches. Two nice approaches appearing in the literature are, are described in some detail over here. An interesting problem that I've encountered in practice is what happens if you want reserves or accident your loss ratios, for example, um, at a lower level of granularity than a line of business. Maybe you want it for claim type, region, age, etc. And this becomes very difficult with your normal chain ladder calculations because there's too much data to look at um, and, and work out judgmentally. So Mario Wutrich has got a really great um, paper and the key formula for me is this. This is the claims in accident URI development period J plus one is equal to a function F of X, where X is your feature variables, multiplied through by your claims at development period J. And Mario's insight over here is learn that function F of X with the neural network. And once you've done that, he shows how his method produces extremely accurate and granular IBNR reserves, which is really useful if you're looking to do an accident your loss ratio analysis at one step lower than a line. Another really interesting method is the deep triangle method of Kevin Kuo. Um, this is less traditional. He basically tries to jointly predict paid and outstanding claims using recurrent neural networks and embedding layers. And he finds that there's better performance than your chain ladder method, your GLM, Bayesian techniques on schedule P data from the United States. A really interesting paper, and I think what both of these um, show is that there's a lot of room to optimize the techniques that we use in reserving um, for non-life insurance liabilities. The last one is telematics data. So telematics data is really interesting because it's very high dimensional. You've got a whole bunch of different observations um, of position, velocity, acceleration, angular momentum, etc., at very high frequencies. And it's not immediately, or at least for me, it wasn't immediately obvious how you can incorporate telematics data into your normal GLM pricing models. So there's some very sophisticated approaches which have appeared outside of the actuarial literature and um, very interesting reading if this is your type of thing. Within the actuarial literature and the example I'm going to focus on over here is a series of papers by uh, Mario Wittrich and a bunch of his co-authors who discussed the analysis of what they call velocity acceleration heat maps. And here's an example of one of these heat maps. Let's just go through how to interpret this. So this heat map um, going from left to right shows speed in kilometers per hour and going from bottom to top shows your acceleration in meters per second squared. And the actual heat map is a density map. So it shows how often a particular driver was found in each one of those buckets of speed and acceleration. Um, uh, Mario Wuttrich and um, his co-author found that if you summarize these heat maps using unsupervised learning, they applied k-means, principal components analysis, and shallow autoencoders, they, they came up on a, a really stunning result, that if you take the output of those unsupervised techniques, put them in a GLM, it's even more predictive than age, gender, car, make of car. 
So it's just really interesting that an unsupervised feature is useful in the supervised learning context. And why is that the case? Um, this, these gentlemen have written probably the, the best textbook on deep learning, and they write that um, the basic idea is that features which are useful for the unsupervised learning task also might be useful for the supervised machine learning task. So what I did is I took about 2,000 heat maps um, generated with software that Mario Wittrich has kindly provided and fit a convolutional autoencoder to it. And this is the output of the convolutional autoencoder. So we've taken the very high dimensional um, heat map and distilled it into a two-dimensional space. And what does this space mean? To give some sort of intuition, as you move from left to right in this space, that's represented in the heat maps as you go down on this diagram, you see there's more and more weight, more and more density occurring in the higher speed bucket. And as you go from bottom to top in this two-dimensional space, which is the equivalent of going from left to right, your heat map becomes uh, less continuous and more discrete. So you can see it here, how it's quite um, continuous. And here you've got discrete blobs of density. So this is an example of how you can apply deep learning techniques to very high dimensional data and really distill it down to something that has got quite a nice semantic interpretation. So those are the examples I'm going to, um, I'm planning on discussing today. And in the last five minutes, I'm going to just discuss what we've seen and, and try to draw some conclusions. So I think a major uh, aspect of the machine learning and deep learning literature is its emphasis on the predictive performance of these techniques and the potential gains. I think this is the key point for, for us as actuaries sitting in the room. There's huge potential gains of moving away from traditional actuarial and statistical techniques if we start using these more sophisticated approaches. I think a lot of the gains have been driven by the measurement framework in the machine and deep learning literature, where there's a focus on testing the predictive performance of your models. So you don't find much philosophizing in the deep uh, learning literature. It's all about does this model work and can you prove it? Um, and really in the wider deep learning context, this focus on measurable improvements has led to massive improvements in model performance in the past couple of years. What I find very interesting and I think is a point that could be elaborated on more is that the learned representations from deep neural networks have a readily interpretable semantic meaning. So for example, within actuarial terminology, what you get out of an embedding layer is a schedule of relativities. Um, and that should be familiar terminology to our pricing actuaries in the room. Machine, these types of deep learning models are extremely data hungry. Um, so it relies on data being available. And in my mind, there's a potential role for ASA um, to put together something like the CSI to aggregate data so that all companies can benefit. Um, and maybe that's an answer to a comment that was made with the, the, in, on the first day that companies with the biggest pile of data will be the most successful. Um, which probably is not an ideal state of affairs. And then lastly, an, an interesting point for me, um, and this touches on um, Mario Wittrich's um, extension of the chain ladder map model that we discussed, is that combining deep learning with traditional statistical and actuarial methods can be very successful. And I think that's an avenue of research which actuaries should um, consider. What is the outlook? For me, the, the key takeaway is that deep learning can 
dramatically enhance the predictive power of models built by actuaries and provide the means potentially to extend actuarial modeling to new types of data, whether that's image data, sensor data, natural language data, and all of those sorts of things. The application of deep learning techniques is a rapidly emerging field within actuarial science, um, and I'm sure we'll see a lot more papers, so I guess you shouldn't make predictions if you've got something to do about it, but there is that mortality paper I mentioned, so this prediction is correct. Something I think that's uh, important to note, though, is that deep learning is not a panacea for all modeling issues. If you apply it to the wrong domain, you'll get absolutely useless results. Um, so you have to have a certain level of expertise um, when you apply these techniques. So just in terms of the examination of where it's been applied, I feel like the high frequency and high dimensional telematics data is perhaps the most foreign type of data to actuaries. Um, and it could be expected that these types of data will become more important within insurance and therefore deep learning will, will, will rise to greater prominence. And then the, the last note on, in, on this slide is um, slightly pessimistic, um, winter might be coming. And what I'm trying to say by that is that if actuaries don't take the lead in, in applying deep learning techniques to insurance, someone else is going to come along and eat our lunch pretty shortly. It's probably the wrong thing to say in a city experiencing a heat wave, but uh, at the time it made sense. I feel there's an important role for guidance and professionalism in deep neural networks. There's always going to be an element of expert judgment in how you design and um, fit an optimal mark, uh, model architecture. And here's an opportunity for actuaries to um, work with the frameworks of governance that we've developed around expert judgment, and that can allow actuaries to become experts in the application of deep learning within actuarial science. I think with any technique, whether it's traditional or based on machine learning, actuaries need to apply their professional judgment to think if the results are reasonable and fit for purpose and in the public interest. And I think this touches on a lot of the recent discussion of the ethics of deep learning models. So there was um, quite a newsworthy item a few days ago where Amazon trained a deep neural network on all of their recruitment data. And if they found um, just recently after mo running this model for a couple of years that it systematically discriminates against women because fewer women were hired in the past. And obviously that is a totally um, unfavorable outcome. And I think there's a role for guidance on how these models should be used to achieve results that are in the public interest and are fit for purpose. That's why I think that actuarial societies such as ASA should step up and provide guidance to their members on how machine learning and deep learning techniques should be applied. So 44 minutes and 30 seconds, pretty accurate. Thank you so much for giving me the, the, the platform here. I just say one last thing in closing. I'd, I'd love to discuss this with any of you, so feel free to pop me an email if you're interested. Um, the code is on a GitHub repository. You're welcome to download it. It's open source, and I don't accept liability, so if you break your insurance company, please don't send your general counsel to me. And I've also written a blog on some of the ideas that I couldn't capture in the paper, so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ronald. We have some time for questions. There are any? Sorry, can we get a microphone here on the left and there in the back? 
Um, I was just wondering if it would be um, possible and helpful to iterate between uh, um, what you're doing and a, and a Bayesian um, prior, sort of up, using the neural network to update your prior and get a posterior so that you you actually got a system that converges to the true dis, um, distribution. Um, so th that's a really interesting idea. If I understand what you're saying correctly, it's um, specify your prior in terms of a neural network. So I think it would be quite difficult to apply MCMC to derive um, that, uh, anything from that. But what I will say is um, Bayesian deep neural networks is a field that's rapidly expanding and I think um, is of a lot of interest. So there, instead of specifying a prior as a neural network, you specify a prior on the coefficients of the neural network. And that allows you to evaluate um, the accuracy. I've seen these fit with uh, Markov Chain Monte Carlo and variational inference. And that is a really exciting and interesting field. So yeah, if, if at any stage you succeed to fit a prior as a neural network, I'd love to see that work. Thanks. Uh, I think there was a question here in front. Oh. oh okay. Um, my name is Louis. Um, I just wanted to think about the, your questions around um, avoiding bias in, in machine learning models. I think it's, I think, I think, have you thought about how complex that actually is? Um, especially in the case of, say, like the telematics data, you would actually even if you exclude the gender variable, let's say, from, 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 the, from the thing, if you wanted to avoid discriminating based on gender in a pricing model, um, you would still pick up potentially on gender through other variables that you don't even understand or know. And I, I, I don't know if you have comments on that. So thanks. That, that, that's really interesting. I think you're spot on. If I recall correctly, there's a paper that's recently been discovered where they show a high correlation between telematics and gender. And they, the question they were asking is, in the EU where you're not allowed to price based on gender, if using telematics models might be acceptable. I absolutely agree with you. Um, avoiding that type of unwanted bias, um, especially if the law demands it of you, is something we would need to consider further and any actuary applying these models needs to think about. I'd say on the other hand in South Africa where your pricing is not regulated at all um, and we do discriminate on the basis of gender, I guess it's a little bit less of a worry. Um, but I think it's a topic that deserves a whole lot more research. Thanks. There's a gentleman here in front that um, has had his hand up twice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just want to know if you have ever encountered what we call preemptive algorithm, because from what I understand from your presentation, um, your algorithm and in general the algorithm are really data hungry. Uh, but I'm I'm more interested to know if it is possible to develop preemptive algorithm, like algorithm that can basically function without data or that can function before data and any application in the actual science? Um, so de deep learning models are very data hungry and I don't think you're going to escape from it. But what's happened is um, there's an interesting concept called transfer learning where you take a pre-trained deep neural network um, which has been trained on tons and tons of data and then you apply it to your relatively smaller and simpler data set and that is very successful as well. 
Um, I didn't touch on it, but in that table of the GLM results, what I did is I pulled the learned schedule of relativities out of the deep neural network and put it in uh, just a simple GLM. And there's quite a big performance boost of your simple GLM. So it's not exactly what you're talking about, but transfer learning might be something to Google. Um, okay. Um, I just wondering, you mentioned some application of some of these techniques on mortality forecasting. So my question is uh, on uh, life insurance. Uh, is there possibilities or maybe have you seen some applications of neural networks on predicting like mortality, saying like deriving the mortality rates using that? Um, so what I say in the paper um, at one stage is you can think of a normal experience investigation in terms of a regression model. And as soon as you have that formulation, you can apply a neural network or, in fact, any other machine learning um, technique to, to learn that regression. So I'd say definitely yes. The application of mortality forecasting that we focused on is reformulating the Lee Carter model, which is a population forecasting model using neural networks. And that has got quite impressive forecasting power. So I'd say within the context of an insurance company, definitely just formulate it as a regression. Um, and then more demographic applications, I think, are also possible. Thanks. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Yeah, so I just want to say, uh, Ron, thanks very much for, for doing this. I think it's a, it's a really important conversation in, in the profession. Um, and I think you're, you're, you're looking at how to bring AI to actuarial. I think the other question we've got to look at, uh, difficult as it is, is what can actuarial bring to AI? Um, you know, I suppose you speak to people who come from computer science background, um, pure statistical background, and as, as Dan Schreiber said, I mean, you're not quite sure you know, if there's any role for actuaries to play in this. I suppose one thought is, you know, we've always said we're good at, at sort of dealing in, in, in areas where there's low data, uh, in, in bringing the commercial perspective. And, and, I mean, one of the challenges, you touched on this in one of your slides, is that often neural nets end up as black boxes. Yeah, so is any thoughts, any thoughts then on how our skill set can, can really take AI forward uh, in insurance or, or elsewhere? So I, I think that's a great question, and, and my perspective on it would be that um, a couple of years ago, we had, there was a big data working group within ASA, and a lot of the discussion was, okay, we actuaries, we know how to use data well. Um, let's take our skills and apply it outside of actuarial science. And part of the, the point that I think needs to be made is, it's already been done, and it's been done very well by computer scientists and, and perhaps by some statisticians. What actuaries, the opportunity that remains is bring deep learning into actuarial science. So revolutionize the techniques that actuaries are using. Don't rely on your chain ladder, have a deep neural chain ladder. Don't rely on your GLM, have a deep learning technique there. And within our specialized space in insurance, um, in pensions, perhaps in investments, that's where we should be bringing techniques in. Because I think, as, you, as you're pointing out, it's been done in other fields by other people. And part of the point I'm trying to make is that if we, as actuaries sitting in the room here, don't start doing that, someone else is going to come along and do it for us. And then there'll be a lot less for actuaries to do within insurance. 
Um, I, I hope that's not too pessimistic, but I really do see a great opportunity for actuarial science as a discipline to change and incorporate these techniques now. And then I think there was one gentleman here on, on that side for our last question. So, Ron, uh, my question is basically, how do you see model governance and model risk management changing with the type of models that are changing? Because we, probably most of you would agree that model risk is a big risk in the financial services industry, and we are moving away from uh, explanatory power to predictive power of models, and you mentioned interpretation and meaning as being relevant as well. So, I, I always think that meaning and interpretation is quite relevant in order to manage model risk. So, how is that changing? Mm. So, Nicola, I think that's a great question. The, I think what actuaries have done and have been pretty good at is documenting assumptions and documenting judgment. And there's a lot of assumption and a lot of judgment that goes into building these models. So part of managing model risk for me is get your assumptions down and have a controlled framework in which you build models. I think around controlling model risk through understanding, there's a very interesting class of techniques emerging which try to allow you to interpret deep neural networks. So a particular coefficient won't have meaning, but it's possible to derive what is the impact of a particular input variable on the model. And there's, there's something called the locally interpretable um, machine explaining model, LIME. Um, and that basically says, how do your input variables have an impact on what the results of the neural network are. So I think also through examining frameworks like that, it can become possible to validate whether or not the model's acting in a reasonable way that accords with intuition, and if not, either learn something new or find a new model. I think just the last point over there in terms of model risk, a key thing which needs to be done is build out the framework for understanding the variability of neural networks. So I'm responding to Professor Thompson's um, question there, there's been quite a lot of work done on Bayesian neural networks, and that is a great way of understanding what is the variability in your predictions, and I think that understanding that is also quite key to the model risk question that you ask. Thank you very much, Ronald. Um, I think it's lunchtime. <laughs>